Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Uh, Thank you for joining us again at Oak City Church. We're really glad that you are with us this morning or whenever it is that you're tuning in. If you are new to Oak City Church, a special welcome to you, and we would love to to see you uh, next Sunday on Easter. So a special invitation to you and look forward to seeing um, a lot of you out next Sunday. We're in week 13 of a series that we've called Connecting the Dots, uh, how the big story, the little stories of the Bible tell God's big story that help us understand our story. And we're at the point of that story where we're talking about the life of Jesus. Last week, we talked about the teachings of Jesus. And this week, we're going to talk about uh, the miracles of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus, are we probably talk about those more because they're um, prominent and popular uh, part of his ministry and because we know what to do with them. Because as we saw last week, they're really applicable yet today. Um, the miracles are a little bit harder for us to grasp and harder for us to know what to do with. So this is a passage from Matthew chapter 4, kind of an overview of this part of Jesus' ministry. It says, He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and Jesus healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And so his miracles, they are all over the Gospels. I read this week that there are, I think, 37 or 38 specific um, accounts of miracles that Jesus did. But then there's the passages like these where they said they brought all these people to him and he healed all of them. So it's got to be hundreds, if not thousands, of miracles that Jesus performed um, while he was here. And yet we just, we don't talk about them as much as the other parts of Jesus' ministry. And, and I can understand looking at the world we live in. On the one hand, we live in a world where, you know, right now, the, the really popular yard sign that you see, um, part of it says in our house, we believe that science is real. Like we feel the need to clarify that we believe that science is real. And I think that's more than just saying, you know, I think gravity's going to work again today, just like it did yesterday. I think it's not that. I think there's a, a hint of, hey, don't bother me with your superstitious religious nonsense in the sign. Or at least that's what it, it um, feels like. And I know it has, I think it has its origins on the, on the sign of, with, with global warming, but it's, it's phrased in a broader way of like, more, more than that, more than just that. And, and it, um, it sure seems like we live in a culture where you can't be intellectually serious and at the same time believe that, you know, the supernatural occasionally invades the, the natural. And it's been like this for a long time. I was in my reading this week, um, I saw an article referenced about C.S. Lewis from 1947 in Time magazine. And the headline was Oxford and Oxford is like just one of the pinnacle world universities. Oxford's C.S. Lewis's heresy, his heresy, colon, Christianity. Um, and not just like a, you know, mamby-pamby Christianity, but Orthodox Christianity, like really believing in the miraculous stuff. And that in 1947 was this public intellectual's heresy, um, was Christianity. So we live with that type of um, pressure. At the same time, people are, maybe more than ever, turning to alternate forms of 
religion. So I found an article from the, the Los Angeles Times titled How Millennials Replaced Religion with Astrology and Crystals. And I see this stuff all the time. You know, um, I see these, these uh, surveys done by uh, Pew Research is one of them, but Gallup does them and just people's religious affiliation. And the fastest growing category every time they come out is nuns. And not like nuns wearing the outfit, ladies, nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns, like no religious affiliation, but they don't choose atheist. It's not that they don't believe anything. It's just they don't affiliate it with anything. And so they're not Catholic and they're not Protestant and they're not Buddhist or Muslim. You know, it's just some vague um, spirituality, but that's the fastest growing one. And so from this article it, from the LA Times, it interviewed this woman said she's a, one of a growing number of young people, largely millennials, though the trend extends to younger Gen Xers um, and down to Gen Z, the oldest of whom are freshly minted college grads who've turned away from traditional organized religion and are embracing more spiritual beliefs and practices like tarot, uh, astrology, meditation, energy healing, and crystals. And the New Yorker, which is a pretty prominent publication, has referred to them as the astrology generation. So on the one hand, we're pro-science and reason, and it's kind of a public taboo to believe in the supernatural. And on the other hand, we've got this, like, it's not going away. In fact, it's increasing. Like there's a, a grassroots spirituality that people are after. And so where do miracles fit into that? And what do we what do we do with those? So that's what I'm going to talk about. I'll def Miracle, um, Lewis had a definition of this just real simply, an interference with nature by supernatural power, which I thought was helpful. An interference by nature with nature by supernatural power. So like, what do we think about that? Do miracles exist? Did Jesus really do miracles? Do they still happen? What do we do with them? Can we influence them? How much time and energy should we expend concerning ourselves with them? And so I'm going to go through a few of Jesus' miracle stories, um, and then I'm going to talk pretty quickly at the end about four aspects of miracles, the necessity of miracles, the power of miracles, the purpose of miracles, and then the limits of miracles. So first story, this is Mark chapter four. Uh, it says, and leaving the crowd, they, they took Jesus with them in the boat, the disciples did just as he was, and other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. I'll be honest, I don't have a lot of context for, um, for this story. I'm not, I've never been much of a boater. Uh, I've never been on the water when a storm has arisen and waves are crashing in and I thought maybe we're going to drown. I couldn't tell you where the stern on a boat is if you paid me. This story, though, like I think all of us understand, it's an easy one to understand metaphorically because, because most of us have probably felt like Jesus has been asleep on the cushion while we're about to drown in the boat, you know? And we've been like, hey, Jesus, why don't you do something about this? And so the disciples, it says they woke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Which I think is kind of an interesting place to go with the question because it's not, the issue is like we're about to drown, but they go to the issue beneath the issue, which is you don't care about us. And it's a little passive aggressive, like they all need some counseling because because you do that, right? You go you go past the issue to, it's not, the issue isn't the dishes didn't get done, it's you don't care about me. And so you've had that conversation probably with somebody that you're sitting really close to right now. And if not, out loud than at least in your head. And we do that with, with Jesus too. We do that with God. Like 
Um, you're not doing anything, so you must not care about me. And it's part of the, the complexity and the difficulty of miracles is if you could stop it now, why didn't you stop it earlier? Like, God, what are you doing with the power that you have, which is, is, ends up being the frustration. So it says, Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And that's a great scene. Like Jesus gets up and it's like he's angry at the wind and the sea. They woke him up from his nap. Like, hey, would you stop that? And you calm down. I, we watched um, A Night at the Museum the one where, where, the, where the Museum of Natural History in New York comes alive at night and Ben Stiller is like the night uh, watchman. And, and there's a scene where he picks up um, Owen Wilson, who's this little cowboy Jedediah and Octavius, and he says, you guys need to cut it out. And that's kind of how Jesus is with the weather, you know. And he said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him, which is kind of a leading question. You know, they start out calling him teacher and they end the story saying, well, who could this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's a leading question, you know. Now, this series we've gone through from Genesis to now, we're going through the whole Bible. And, and one of the things we've seen, and you can ask in light of this, is who in the Bible gets to control the weather? Uh, and it's always God. You know, Genesis, God creates the forces of nature that create the weather in um in the story of Noah, you know, God has the rains come down and the springs of the, of the skies open up and then they recede in Exodus. Uh, there's the 10 plagues and those are forces of nature that under God's control and the Red Sea is parted and the Israelites go through and then the, the waters of the Jordan get held back so that Joshua can lead the people into the promised land. And then stories in the Old Testament like Elijah, where um, he is... Um, you know, messing it up with the with the prophets of Baal and the fire comes down and and consumes his offering. And then the next scene, the rain after three years comes and he knows it's coming because God told them. And then um, he's in the cave running from Jezebel and he's tired. And it says there was a great wind and then there was an earthquake and a fire. But God wasn't in those things, but God caused those things. And so God's the one in control of the weather. And so they're they're asking and answering a question and saying, who is this? Jesus is God, because he controls the weather. And that's one of the effects of his miracles. So one story. Second story, Mark chapter 5. So Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and they come to the land of a people called the, the Gerasenes. And there is a really literally a maniac there. So he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles in peace, and, and no one had the strength to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So that's a scene right there. Like they couldn't bind him anymore, but they could previously, and not even with chains. And he's crying out all night long and cutting himself, and no one goes anywhere near him. And when the guy saw Jesus from afar, he ran to Jesus, which if you're one of the disciples, like I'm, that's an uncomfortable scene for me. I'm like, hey, can we go someplace else? Uh, and so he falls down before Jesus, crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So this scene has lots of stuff going on. You know, who is the guy that's among the tombs he comes to Jesus and doesn't say, teacher, he says, son of the most high God, and Jesus doesn't deny it. 
And then he is um, begging Jesus not to torment him, which Jesus is not known for tormenting people. So where does he get the idea that that might happen? Jesus, in a few verses I'm going to skip, asks his name and he says legion, which means there are many um, inside of this guy. And it says a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged Jesus saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they were drowned in the sea. And so those were demons in the guy that came out and went into the pigs and drowned in the sea. This is a hard story for us. Demons, the demonic realm is hard for us. We don't see this stuff happening um, a lot, you know, and well, maybe we do. And when we don't know what to do with it, and it seems far-fetched, and it's just not something you want to talk about, um, you know, in public company. I'll say this, I absolutely believe that this, this happens. And I don't think it's that hard if you believe that there's a spiritual force for good and you see so much evil going on that there is a spiritual force for bad as well. But I do think it open, it's unpopular and opens you up to some amount of, of ridicule and skepticism. Um, but I've asked the church a number of times over the years, how many of you have had some type of experience where you think you've engaged with the demonic realm in some way, either you personally or someone that's like, it's secondhand, but the, the people that are closest to you, your, your really close family, really close friends that you trust implicitly. And every time I ask that, a third to a half of the church raises their hands, which makes me think this is much more common than we think it is. People just don't want to talk about it. There is a... Um, a, an author, a, he was a psychiatrist, I think, named Scott Peck. He wrote a book years ago, like one of the first wave of self-help books called The Road Less Traveled. And I don't think he was a Christian when he wrote that. He was just a psychiatrist. But over time, as he kept practicing um, psychiatry, he ended up becoming a Christian. And one of the reasons, from what I understand, is that he came across something that he couldn't put into a psychological construct or label um, that was just evil. He ended up writing a book called People of the Lie. And his last book, I think, was called Glimpses of the Devil. And he actually recounts a couple of exorcisms that he did. And he didn't, he got there honestly. He wasn't looking for this. He didn't have a presupposition about it, but the evidence led him to that. He recounts a situation with a patient where he said her head started to move back and forth in a strange weaving pattern that looked remarkably like that of a cobra. Um, her body curled and her curled body sprang towards me. Its mouth flared open. The team tried to restrain her from biting um, this author Peck. Uh, and the seemingly sickly patient had close to superhuman strength and fought against this with amazing violence. Though he knew intellectually that they were looking at a human being, he writes, our intuitive minds were so powerfully affected that what we saw was a snake. Like stuff like this happens. People at church over the years have recounted story after story after story of this. You know, my old boss talked about a situation he was in where he had a woman that just kept pounding her head on the table as they were trying to deal with this with her. And, you know, author named Neil Anderson, who was a seminary professor of his, helping him. And then she broke out in the crazy demonic voice. There was a guy here at church a number of years ago said he was in a situation where somebody was experiencing that and then they vomited. And this guy that was later coming to our church had the job of carrying the vomit to the um, the dumpster. And he said at first it was just a bag with some liquid in it, but by the end he needed two hands to carry this thing like with all his strength because something crazy had happened. This guy was a lawyer. He was not given to hyperbole. He doesn't make stuff up like that. You know, there's another family here where 
I think the guy's parents were working a Christian camp and there was a petite teenage girl and something was going on and she ended up giving her life to Jesus by the end of the camp, but not after like throwing off a couple guys that they had, like big teenage guys that, that they'd had to restrain her. And another guy talked about um, when he and his brother were up at Appalachian State, his brother called him one night to come over and pray through a situation because some random guy had showed up at their apartment and was hiding behind a houseplant growling at them like a wolf or something. And so like stuff like this, uh, I think happens more often than we want to admit. Now in context of this story, you know, in the big sweep of the story, the, the demonic realm, what are demons and where do they come from? Biblically, our best understanding is that the devil was a, an angel who tried to ascend to the throne of God. And so God cast him away with a bunch of other angels that became demons. And so this scene where Jesus is casting away the demons and they're asking him for permission and they know who Jesus is, is all declaring Jesus. They've seen Jesus before. They know who he is. He's, he has the power to cast them away because he is God. So that's a, a miraculous story, but it has an obvious intent to it. Now, one more one more miracle story, Mark chapter 5. A great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who'd suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And, and you probably know people, or maybe you are a person that's been in a situation like this where for 12 years, the situation hasn't gotten any better. And you've gone to, you've spent all your money or you've known people that have done this. Um, this is why Go, GoFundMe's around, you know, and, and, and you've, you've expended all the resources, you've gone to every doctor you could think of, and it hasn't gotten any better. In fact, it's gotten worse. And so here she is, and she'd heard reports about Jesus. So she maybe heard about these things, casting out demons, or, you know, his baptism where the, the spirit descends on him, or any number of things. And he came up behind him in the crowd and touched Jesus' garment, for she said, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. Now, there's a lot of, um, I think, informed speculation about why she thought I could touch his garment and I'll be made well. There's a, a prophecy in the Old Testament. We talked about prophecies of the coming Messiah, the, the, the Christ, the one that would rescue them. And one of them is in Malachi where it says, um, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And the word for wings, <laughs> Um, that Malachi uses is kanaf, and that's a word from further back in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, where God told them to, to, to wear prayer shawls with tassels on the end that would have the commands of God so they wouldn't forget the commands of God. And the, the corners of those prayer shawls were called kanaf. That was the same word for wings. And so it's the idea that if you touch the corner of the prayer shawl of a Messiah, then there will be healing in that. And that's what she's thinking is like, what have I got to lose? I'm going to do everything I can to, to touch the corner of his prayer shawl. And so she does, and immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And I've read this a number of times where people just feel like there's some pulse of electricity almost that flows through them, and they know something happened and they're healed. If you want to look up some crazy healing stories, look up a guy named Ken Fish on the internet. I wouldn't I'm not going to vouch for everything Ken Fish does or says, but man, he's got some crazy stories that you can't explain, and, and they follow this pattern. And so as, as Jesus, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out for him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples are like, 
do you see how many people are here? Do you see the crowd pressing in on you and yet you're gonna ask who touched you? Everyone touched you. And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And uh, her life has changed. And so who is this guy and how does he know who touched him? And why is he calling her daughter and her faith in what has made her well? And how does that healing happen? And all of this and the Kanab, it's all meant to declare that Jesus, he's the Messiah. He is God. He is God. So those are just a few of the 38 of the thousands of, of healings that Jesus did. What do we get out of those? Here's one thing that I see in these that I think we need to see, and it's the necessity of the miracles of Jesus. Miracles are an undeniable part of Jesus' ministry on earth, and people have tried to pull them apart, you know, just at various points across, like people are always trying to do that, and you just can't do it. Thomas Jefferson rewrote the Bible and took out all the miraculous stuff, you know, and that was a popular thing in his day. More recently, there's a group of scholars that um, were called the Jesus, the Jesus Seminar, and um, they would do, they had a presupposition that the miraculous couldn't happen, so they'd go back through the Gospels and everything that he did and everything that he said, and then they would like have a different colored marble for what he probably did say or do and that what he likely didn't say or do and what he definitely didn't and they just took out all the miraculous because people have a presupposition that miracles are impossible and you just cannot do that and still have Jesus. In fact, they need to be prioritized more than we do. And I realized that this week there's so many stories that I've been powerfully affected by in the past. Um, miraculous stories that I've heard from people or read in books or articles that I've just kind of filed away in some background place because you, you don't know what to do with them and because there's a certain frustration that comes along with miracles because you want to know if he, if he did it then, why won't he do it now? Um, and, and if he let things get so bad that he could do a miracle, why didn't he keep things from getting so bad in the first place? And we don't want to go there because it's a hard place to be, but I think the miracles need to take us there. And so miracles, you just can't deny they're a part of the Jesus story. You can't say, oh, well, science is now. No, no, they weren't, the people that lived 2,000 years ago weren't like complete morons. You know what I mean? They didn't think that people could have babies without having sex either. You know, it's just, it's not, hasn't changed that much. You just can't write them off. We have to deal with them. Um, and the frustrating thing about that yard sign, honestly, is that I believe science is real too. I really do. Um, but I also think God is real, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And I think the evidence points, in fact, towards the supernatural realm, that there's just some limits to our scientific understanding, which I understand is a problem if you're in a scientific endeavor. But for some scientists, it doesn't seem to be a problem at all. And so I, I believe in both, and I believe that there's a God who stands outside nature because he created the laws of nature, and he has the right to interfere with those laws for his purposes, and that's what he's showing us in Jesus. And so they're, they're necessary. A miracleless Jesus is not a real Jesus. Um, okay, second thing, the power of the miracles. Like the power has to affect us. And so the miracle, miracles show Jesus exercising power over forces that only God has power over and that has to affect us. And so it's nature, it's the, the spiritual realm, um, it's, it's the body, it's sight, it's 
food, it's um, life and death, and that power is, is clearly meant to communicate that Jesus is God and confront us. And so have you let, and this kind of gets to last week where he can't just be a good teacher and the teachings point to this too, but have you let that confront you? Do you believe that there's a, there's a natural realm and a supernatural realm and God sits outside of it and Jesus sits outside of it? And that might sound like a silly question because we're in church, but you have to keep coming back to that question because we live day by day and moment by moment in the natural. And that's good that God gave us that to live day by day and moment by moment in but it's easier just to get comfortable in this and not ask the questions and be confronted by the things that that power confronts us with. And so you have to deal with the frustrations that the miracles can bring. Why does he do it sometimes and not, not other times, you know? And, and what do we make of that? I, there are a couple stories I was reminded, well, one I hadn't heard before is a podcast between a Christian and a guy that used to be a Christian. And they were actually talking about creation. It had nothing to do with the sermon, but they, one, the one guy recounted a story. They're talking about God being outside of time and space and how this missionary in Asia had a need for their ministry and prayed about that need and, and, made, you know, and made the need known. But before that they had prayed about the need or made the need known or even knew they had the need, someone in the United States had been prompted by God to put in motion the thing that would meet that need. And so, like, how did that happen? You know, and that just God is outside of these things. And what do we do with that? How do you explain that? There was another story I was reminded of um, uh, from this book called um, The Insanity of God, which is just a fantastic book. And it's about a Russian believer named Dmitry. Um, and so this guy was a believer during the Soviet times when it's communist Russia and you couldn't be, no one could be a Christian because it's an atheist state. Um, but he had, he had, um, either he or his parents had grown up pre all that. And so he had some Jesus in his background. They were in rural Russia, so it wasn't enforced as much. And he had children. He and his wife were like, well, we should teach them. I want them to know a little bit about Jesus, at least. So they started reading the Bible together and singing some songs and kind of doing church as a family. Well, the neighbors, small town neighbors picked up on that. They're like, hey, can we join you? And so pretty soon the guy has like a house church. Um, meeting. Well, then the officials find out that he has a house church. So they come to his house a few times and one time, I guess he had about 75 people in his house, and the soldier's like, Adam, you have to stop and beat the guy before he left. Well, an old lady that was there for church stopped the soldier on the way out and said, you're not going to get away with this. Like, God is going to punish you for that. And the next night, the soldier died of a heart attack. I don't know what to make of that. But, um, but the next week, the church doubled in size because people were like, whoa. And, and that wasn't good for Dimitri because he got sent to prison. For 17 years, he got sent to prison. Uh, for doing that. Now he got to prison. It's a prison of 1,500 hardened criminals, no believers in Jesus. And so he got there and he decided his routine was going to be every morning. He woke up and just full on sang a particular hymn, a song that he knew to Jesus. And people yelled at him and cussed at him and jeered, threw stuff at him every time he did it. And then he would, whenever he found a piece that he paper he could write on and a utensil he'd write down whatever scripture he could he could recall and he'd like put it in a certain place on his cell as an offering and the soldiers would come find it and they'd take it away and then they'd beat him up because that's what they did well, after years and years of this and the soldiers telling him hey you know just telling him all the stuff about his family like your family doesn't believe anymore we beat up your family we killed your family we're going to kill your family the guy gets to a point where he's like i just can't take it anymore and he was ready to sign 
whatever um, confession they wanted him to sign. And so they said, we'll prepare your confession tonight. You'll sign it tomorrow and, th and then you'll go free. After all those years, the only thing that Dimitri had to do was sign his name on a document saying he wasn't a believer in Jesus and that he was a paid agent of Western governments trying to destroy the Soviet Union. And then he'd be free to go. So he told them, bring it tomorrow and I'll sign it. That very night, he sat um, on his jail cell bed. He was in deep despair, grieving the fact that he had given up. At that same moment, a thousand kilometers away, his family, his wife, his children, uh, his brother, sensed through the Holy Spirit the despair of this man in prison. His loved ones gathered around in the living room that the interviewer was sitting with Dimitri at, at, that, at the time that, that he was doing the interview. Uh, they knelt in a circle and began to pray out loud for him. Miraculously, the Holy Spirit of the living God allowed Dimitri to hear the voices of his loved ones as they prayed. The next morning, when the guards marched into his cell with the documents, Dimitri's back was straight, his shoulders were squared, and there was strength on his face and in his eyes. He looked at his captors and declared, I'm not signing anything. They were incredulous. They thought that he was beaten and destroyed. What happened? They demanded to know. He smiled and told them in the night, God, let me hear the voices of my wife and my children and my brother praying for me. You lied to me. I now know that my wife is alive and physically well, that my sons are with her and that they are all still in Christ. And so I'm not signing anything. He goes on to talk about shortly thereafter finding a whole piece of paper. And so he writes down everything he can remember with scripture. And they find this whole piece of paper and then they threaten to kill him. And as they're taking them out to where they say they're going to kill him, the 1,500 prisoners in the prison all stand up at once who had yelled at him and thrown stuff at him and jeered him. And they all in unison with their hands raised sing the hymn that he had sung. And he said, it's just this mind-blowing moment. And shortly after that, they let him go. That's the power of God. But man, what do you do with that? If God's that powerful, then why'd God let him? And you just can't go too far down that road because God has purpose with his miracles, but we're not always going to know um, what his purpose is. And that, that power confronts us, you know? Uh, it confronts us with our powerlessness over that power. And we want to we own our power, you know, we, we love our power, and that's fine, we've got some power, but the miracles confront us and say, our power is like, eh, and it's on loan, and they divorce us from our, from our delusions of power and point us to the one who is most powerful. So we, the power of the miracles has to be um, dealt with. Here's another one, the purpose of miracles. The miracles give us a taste of life in God's kingdom, and so Jesus comes down, and he doesn't give the like it's the already but not yet kingdom. Like it's kind of here, but it's to come. And so all those miracles are restoring things to the way that God wants them to be. You know, um, sight is restored. The lame are healed. The hungry are fed. The dead are raised. And so it's a foretaste of God's kingdom, but not the whole thing. Um, and then the miracles are meant to lead to faith. The purpose of the miracles is to lead to faith. Uh, John 2, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Uh, John 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this gospel, John. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so the miracles are meant to lead us to faith, to point us to him and say, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm going to worship it and surrender to it. But also at the same time, as I say, that's part of the purpose of the miracles. I'll say the limits of the miracles and end with this, the limits of the miracles. So this is Matthew chapter 11. Um, and it says, Then he began to denounce the cities 
where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works done in you, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. That's a, that's a crazy passage. We get caught in this trap, I do, you know, where we think, well, if, if we had more evidence, then we would have more faith. And that's not true. Um, this verse says the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, uh, he denounced them because they didn't repent. It didn't lead to a faith that changed their lives. Um, it's not. The, the purpose of miracles is to lead to faith, but there's more to faith than miracles. And you can't fall into that trap. This, this next verse is one of the most astounding verses, I think, in the Bible. It's, it's after Jesus has risen from the dead. It says, The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So he's gone to the cross and risen from the dead. These are the eleven, his closest guys. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You'll never have more evidence than whoever those guys were that doubted had, but they still doubted. Evidence is not the primary problem when it comes to my faith and to your faith. Uh, it's a problem, but it's not the problem. You need evidence, and evidence is great, but it's not going to solve the problem. Sin is the problem, and Jesus is going to solve that problem. You know, I haven't, I haven't talked about the two biggest miracles, which are the incarnation, God become flesh, and the resurrection, God defeating the power of sin and death and giving us the hope of eternal life. Um, but those are the biggest, those are the biggest miracles that he did. And those weren't, man, those things lead us to belief. But I gotta say this, Jesus didn't come to do some tricks. Like that's not what the miracles are for. Jesus came to rescue us from hell, from an eternity apart from him, from eternity outside of that kingdom where he makes everything right. And what threatens us, what threatens to separate us from him is our unwillingness to surrender to him. It's, it's really, it flows throughout the whole thing, you know, and it's Genesis 3, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> like, don't grasp control over everything for yourself thinking that you're smarter than God, but surrender to him. And and that's where miracles are meant to lead us. And that's ultimately the problem is control. And that's, that can be our biggest problem is that he controls the miracles and we don't. That article from the, the LA Times um, got a little bit further. It said one of the big draws for younger people about spiritual practices is the ability to pick and choose. Says this uh, Jim Burklow, a progressive Christian minister who works with college students at USC. Spiritual practices appeal to the commitment wary. You can get a little into crystals or astrology or tarot or a lot into it. You can buy a few rose quartzes or light a few candles if it's meaningful to you. Um, keep it. If not, it's not like you went through a full religious conversion. That says a lot. I think that goes a long way towards explaining what's going on. And I'd put it this way. We want a supernatural that we don't have to surrender to. And that's not what Jesus offers us. Um, Jesus is the one, I mean, God, Paul says that, uh, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive to, together with Christ. We were raised with him. Uh, Jesus is the one that says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it.
And the miracles ultimately are going to lead to that place of surrendering control over our lives to the one who sacrificed his life for ours. And so I leave with that warning. If that resonates you with, I just had, that's how I am. If I just had more evidence, that's what I believe. If I just had more evidence, then I believe. I really challenge you to to think about that assumption because I don't think that's it. And let the miracles take you deeper to asking is the thing that really bothers you, your lack of control over that power and the direction that it leads you um, to surrender to him. And at the same time I say that, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this verse from Jesus where he says, in context of that surrender, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, thanks for um, giving us Jesus, but giving us a a recounting of all of these miracles, not just one or two or three, but tons and tons of miracles that he did, that he just at the snap of his fingers had power over all these things. Help us to trust um, that you have control over those things and you exercise that control for your good purposes, Lord, and and help us to, to hone in on what those purposes are for us, that they do lead us to faith, but it's more than that. Um, that we need to surrender to a life of faith in you. And it's really repentance and repenting over our desire to control everything in our lives and everything around us and ultimately you, God. We want control over what you do with your power and help us to repent of that and surrender to you. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.